And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. Now, Part of growing a business sometimes means changing the business, pivoting the business, doing something with the business that's maybe not what you originally set out to do. That's exactly what we're going to talk about today when we talk about how to relaunch a startup. Before we get into that, I want to give you a quick reminder that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. My guest today is Zach Harris, and Zach is the founder and CEO of Benefit Bay. You can go to BenefitBay.com to learn more about what they do. There's a link in the show notes that'll make it real easy to go check that out. So, Zach, welcome to Startup Hustle. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Uh, glad to be here, and uh, I uh, appreciate and welcome the invitation. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and get this party started with a quick uh, lesson in your backstory uh, with Benefit Bay, and maybe throw a little something in there about the relaunch part. Sure, sure. So uh, I come uh, to the startup world by via insurance. So I've been in, in and around insurance my whole life, typically on the broker side, right? A salesman and uh, had an agency and uh, sold an agency in 2012 and and had an idea, right? So. Uh, an idea of, of personalized employee benefits and, and more of a consumer-facing uh, model, uh, kind of on the heels of Obamacare, and uh, bounced it off a few people here in Omaha, uh, had some some co-founders, and, and we raised some money, uh, and we built a great piece of technology around all the pieces that an employer might have to run through if they were going to give employees some money, and they were going to buy benefits on the open market, you know, that are, that are right for them. So the, the, the thesis at the time, and, and still really today, is you know, why should an employer decide what's right for me? Why, you know, what uh, somebody right out of college needs for health insurance and life insurance and disability is way different than a family of five. And, you know, let the employer fund and support it. So we built this great piece of technology. And uh, somewhere along the way, uh, the health and human services came in and said, you absolutely cannot pre-tax these premiums. So uh, a big hurdle we couldn't really overcome because that created a real line in the sand between group insurance like most employees have today in this individual model uh, because the taxation issue we couldn't overcome it and so uh, pretty painful uh, you know we kept iterating kept trying the system got pretty complex because we had to do all these tax calculations and ultimately uh, went through the pain of shutting it down right scaling it back selling off some parts uh, and an angel incubator here in Omaha uh, uh, treetop ventures held all the IP and trust and and I stayed in the business and uh, another founder uh, of a, a benefit technology company uh, came to me who I knew and I helped them scale that company. And then in 2019, uh, a law changed. So something called ICRA, individual HRAs that now allows that was that missing piece that we didn't have um, of, uh, you know, uh, pre-taxing these individual benefits. So it kind of 
created this new equilibrium of now we can put people into the open market to shop and it's legal and it's tax favored and it's all of those things. And I remember getting on the phone when that happened with my co-founders. We're like, ah, here it is, you know, too early. We missed the boat. And, you know, about the same time, though, you know, the clients, the carriers, the brokers, everybody that knew what we had built came knocking and said, hey, you got to turn this thing back on and waited a little while. Right. I had some scars from shutting it down the first time and, um, you know, and legislation led to, to really why we shut it down. So waited, a, you know, a good, you know, year or so um, and eventually uh, decided to take the leap. I, I just saw what the market was doing and that five years of iteration that we had really had some value. And uh, the, the angel incubator, um, the guy that leads that has kind of been a mentor to me and uh, went to him and said, hey, I, I think I'm the only one that knows what to do with this. So. Uh, I'm going to relaunch, I'm going to reincorporate, and I'll give you a, a piece of this new company. I'm going to go raise some capital for all of my IP back. And he said yes. And that was uh, February of this year. And so that's kind of the uh, where we, <laughs> how we got it back. And, and uh, capital uh, was fairly easy to come by because now I had had uh, some further experience and, and, and successfully built something in between. And so, um, and then, you know, how we've uh, kind of taken some leaps since then has been a breath of fresh air for sure. Yeah. And that's interesting. And you mentioned ICRA, that's I-C-H-R-A, that's Individual yes. Coverage Health Reimbursement Arrangement, which is mm-hmm. defined as a new type of health reimbursement arrangement uh, available as of 2020 in which employers of any size can reimburse employees for some or all premiums that the employees pay for health insurance that they purchase on their own. Now, this is a you know an interesting solution, and this is uh, changes in healthcare, and I think it sounds like it's for the for the better. Now, obviously, this has gone well. Uh, your company, Benefit Bay, and once again, there's a link in the show notes. Uh, you're one of our top Omaha startups, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Omaha is an interesting town. A lot of people don't realize how much is going on in Omaha. Um, mm-hmm. Berkshire Hathaway may have something to do with that on some <laughs> days, and that's the home of Warren Buffett's mega fund. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a lot of really cool startups in, in Nebraska, which is mm-hmm. surprising to some people because being from Kansas, I often think, man, there can't be other places that have more corn, wheat, and <laughs> And everything other than Kansas. And then there's Nebraska. So I feel yes. better about it. So, you know, it, the problem that you're solving is very familiar to me. Uh, the business that I owned, actually the one that I wrote about in my book, Million Dollar Bedroom. Um, I didn't write about this actual part, but I, I experienced this because I had a very small number of employees. I had one that was 64 and I had a couple that were like less than 30. And then I had my own family and everyone needed different stuff. And mm-hmm. it was impossible for me to personalize that. So I ended up just giving people money. I'm like, mm-hmm. go get what you need. Here's a credit. Yeah. And basically just giving them money. And they had to figure it out because, I, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, what one person needed and what others, you know, that was that was a, a, a it was a pain in the ass. So thank yeah. you for fixing that problem. <laughs> so I'm curious. So with the original benefit bay, mm-hmm. um, you actually shut that down. Like that was a company that, that shuttered and for lack of a better term, if I don't have one, but you actually like ceased to exist Yes. and then brought it back. Yes, it was, um, you know, and, and that's a tough thing, you know, from any entrepreneur coming to yeah. that realization that it's over. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's no more money, there's nowhere to go. Um, you know, didn't have enough money to pivot. And, uh, you know, that, 
that was not a high, high point in my life for sure. But it was, you know, okay, now what do we do? You know, and so you, you, you try to market it, you try to sell off some pieces. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, Treetop just said, look, we're, we're going to hold it in trust for all these angel investors. And most, if, if not all of the money came from here in the Midwest. Um, and we spent quite a bit of money. Um, and, and that's, again, to your point, Omaha is a, a great place to scale a startup. There's local uh, angel dollars. There's a lot of resources. And especially in my industry, which is insurance, uh, Omaha, of course, is uh, known for that. But, um, you know, I remember that day and it's just it, it, it's painful. It's like, all right, we're going to hold it in trust and try to do the best we can with this IP if we can sell it or not. And it just sat there idle, you know, in a Dropbox <laughs> file for, for years. Uh, before it became relevant again, and not not a fun experience at all. Yeah, I was recently. I, I sometimes take a, a minute to step back as we've done these uh, top cities, the startups, and you know we're trying to pick Omaha. Which, by mm-hmm. the way, we couldn't find enough in Omaha, so we mm-hmm. had to just make it Nebraska, <laughs> sure. basically. But you know, it's it's so interesting how certain you have Omaha Mutual. That's the mm-hmm. kind of the, the that's kind of the the nucleus. Mm-hmm. Am I right, or is there? Yeah, there's uh, you know Mutual of Omaha, Lincoln Financial, Mutual of Omaha, here. Right. Okay. Uh, Emeritus is pretty sizable in Lincoln, and I think outside of Hartford, Connecticut, there's the most density of kind of insurance workers in the country. Yeah, well, there's so, a ton in Kansas City too. There's mm-hmm. a lot of insurance. You know, we have locked in here, which is a big sure. one, and mm-hmm. you know, just like it's it's interesting as well because like another thing from where you're at through down to almost Oklahoma City is also referred to as the animal health corridor, <laughs> which yep. is like there's just all kinds of you know animal startups, and you know you have just different regions have different sure. stuff. Okay, so you close down a company. Um, yeah, I've spent time talking about this in the past. Anytime you start a business, there's usually some people that'll tell you that you're crazy, whether they're mm-hmm. right or not. There's usually, so uh, how many people were telling, were saying, "Man, are you nuts? This already, this already failed once, or you shut it down. Why are you going? Are are you a, are you a masochist? Are you signing up for the the pain and anguish? Like, yeah, it's. Uh, I've I've told this a few times that the best sale I think I've ever made in my life was convincing my wife to relaunch a company I had to shut down the first time. Right. So, you know, I think uh, the market was telling me, Hey, we remember what you built and we want it. And, you know, I love talking to brokers or, you know, I I guess non uh, startup or technical folks, just like flipping a light switch, just turn it back on. No problem. And it's really, you know, as, as most people know, there's a lot more to it, right? Any technology that's set there idle for years needs some work. And, you know, but I, I was hearing all the positive stuff. And then, you know, of course, you know, personally and professionally, it's like you had this huge void from shutting this down. And now you're telling your significant other, hey, guess what? I'm going to do this again. It, that was, uh, you know, I had to prove to her that it was a good idea. Right. And it was a good exercise to go through. It gave me some objectivity, like, okay, let's look at the competitive landscape. Where are we going to have our first clients? All of these things. And I was fortunate enough, I think, uh, along the way, I think uh, everybody that was involved in our first iteration had this idea that it was great piece of technology, a great solution, just too early. It was just like, oh, we just we missed it. And so when, when even prior to me bringing on capital, I had some of the old 
employees, some of the engineers and business development folks and that, that jumped back in with me even before I had the funding. So it gave me a sense of confidence that I'm not the only crazy, crazy one here that, that remembers it that way. And uh, I think that bolstered me. But I, I for sure, uh, I just remember having that conversation with my wife because I had a nice, secure job. We had done well. And it's like, OK, I'm going to go back and, you know, hit myself in the head with this again, because I still believe in the concept. And, and that's uh, uh, it, it was a good exercise to go through for sure. Is there a reason that you didn't rebrand it? Yeah, we uh, and we thought about it. Um, but the market reaction, the brokers, insurance brokers like Lockton and Hub and some of the others that knew what we built, they remember us in some ways way better than we even were. And so, you know, it was, we were very, very highly regarded the first go around as, you know, a smart solution to this individualization or personalization of care. And so when we went to look through the rebranding, we were like, boy, we have some positive brand recognition. People remember us, at least the, the key folks that can kind of help drive the needle. And, um, you know, so uh, it wasn't like we were a failure in their eyes. It was that we were too early. And so uh, the marketing decision was to, hey, let's let's keep the brand. There is still some traction behind it. And, uh, you know, a lot of our first clients and brokers, you know, that have really caused this accelerated, you know, what's happening now is what I hope to happen in 2013. So uh, we're growing faster and hiring faster than we than we have intended and because of all of the adoption. And I think a lot of that has to do with the name and, and how folks remember us. And then, of course, the executive team around it solving that problem. People have a lot of uh, confidence in. And so uh, I think it's helped us, uh, which, again, is kind of rare. Normally, you would rebrand and kind of say, OK, well, we shut down. We don't want that negative thing. But I, I we couldn't really identify any negativity around the brand as we did our research. Yeah, I and mean, that's the thing that you would be wanting to eliminate. I mean, if Facebook mm -hmm. can change their name at this yeah. point, then I guess that's we right. all can. We all can, that's right? right? But yeah. you know, that's uh, uh, my next question is, you know, did the did the company shutting down at one point and then relaunching, did that create any difficulty when it came to finding people to come work for you? Uh, no, you know, it was, uh, you know, I'd scaled another, so uh, scaled another startup in the space here in Omaha. So we, we had offices in San Francisco and, uh, uh, Vegas and all over the place. And that, that is a successful Ben tech company. And I was early there, knew the founder. And so, um, I would say that, you know, it's like anything, if you treat people well and you do what you say and you say what you do, uh, they'll grow, they'll gravitate and they believe in the passion that you're delivering. Uh, I, I haven't had with the core team, uh, that piece of it is, uh, you know, I had folks again, jumping on board even before I had funding. Uh, because they wanted to be a part of it. They believed in it the first go around, which is great, especially the engineering, the lead engineers, you know, having them back on board. I don't think I could have done it without them. Right. So um, and Bill Dudley specifically, who was the chief architect, you know, you actually so were able to get you were able to get the original engineers yes. to come back. Yes. Okay. And so that was, again, gave me a little confident step. Uh, that being said, as we're scaling, I've noticed that the coasts have invaded my town of Omaha. You know, because of COVID, there's a lot of remote work. So I'm recruiting against, you know, I used to look at Omaha, even as we scaled uh, the, the last startup in between, um, uh, as just this little cocoon of great people that, you know, uh, highly talented, you know, and cost effective and loyal and all of these things. Well, I think everybody else has realized that. And so we're recruiting against 
firms not in Omaha. And I think a lot of people are realizing that, especially on the technical side, you know, uh, coming by talent locally, you know, we're having to spread out a little bit more than I would have originally anticipated. I thought we could scale the entire engineering team in Omaha here as we had done before. And, um, you know, but it's tough to compete against some of those dollar signs as a startup uh, that some of these folks are getting because they don't have to go into the office anymore. So, you know, some of the things that are driving our business forward as a business are also uh, hurdles we have to overcome when we're staffing ourselves, you know, so um, and you're probably witnessing some of that down your way, too. It's it's like, you know, the remote work and the transient nature of the new workforce has changed the landscape for sure. Seems like a good time to mention that today's episode of Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Um, that's my company. And yep. we actually help companies like yours build teams of engineers in our office in the Philippines. Because mm-hmm. you, And you're right. So this morning I woke up and I read a jobs report here in Kansas City, and there are now 7,000 open IT jobs. Um, there's about half that many available uh, yeah. before the pandemic. So there's a, th- this is a real thing. So there's about 350 to 400,000 open uh, tech jobs in the U.S. And technically, this report said more like 700,000. Mm-hmm. We'll assume some of those could be duplicate or, or different. But, um, you know, you talk about the effects of COVID. Well, first off, everyone wants to work remote and people got to figure that out. But you aren't kidding about the fact that the coasts invaded the Midwest. So you look at towns mm-hmm. like Kansas City, Omaha, Oklahoma City, which already had a problem with leakage. Mm-hmm. Meaning like people would here we refer to it as the brain drain. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like you have these folks in there and, you know, I can't fault people for wanting to do something different or wanting to do something that they find meaningful. So oftentimes they would leave Omaha, Kansas City, wherever, and they move. They go mm-hmm. somewhere that quite honestly is on paper a little more exciting. They often get there and realize that it's a hell of a lot more expensive and maybe that big paycheck is worse. So I see mm-hmm. people leave and then come back. But now with the remote thing, people can be anywhere. And this is yeah. this is a real thing. So, I mean, that's been one of the things. It's, it's just driven our business through the roof. You know? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, because because the thing is, is whether you can find people locally or not, you need to find them. And if you don't, you're not building what you need to build. You're not supporting what you've already built and stuff like that. So in some cases, though, I, I talk to a lot of people that are like, wow, I, we had never considered doing this. And they realize there are smart people everywhere. You just got to mm-hmm. know how to find them or work with the right partners. So, yeah, that's uh, I'll tell you what, the demand for our services is crazy. crazy. Oh, yeah. And it's, yeah, uh, I mean, it's because got- of that. Yeah. Yeah, we've got consultants, uh, you know, uh, outside the U.S. I've got engineers and uh, on the east and on the west. You know, it's yeah. uh, you know, I I still believe in the value of face to face for some yeah. things, right? I think, uh, you know, uh, engineering is one where you know sometimes the solitude helps them be productive. <laughs> True. Um, right, and and you know the office can be a distraction, but you know you talk about customer support and sales and even product development, you know, the ability to have that five minute water cooler discussion about a certain topic has some value. Um, and we still try to foster that as best we can, but it is a, you know, and like I said, it's, it's one of those things that's driving our business forward, you know, for, uh, from a, a client and, and a scalability standpoint, but it's also something we have to deal with as an employer. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. No, and one of the things that's uh, in the U.S. that's a lot more prevalent than other places is, you know, it, uh, 
yeah, I, I read the Wall Street Journal. It's about all the mm-hmm. reading that I actually do, but they're always yep. talking about the great resignation and they're expecting mm-hmm. all this change and churn and everything. And we haven't really experienced that much at full scale. Um, yeah. So some of that, you know, it's like, it is also the culture that you create and provide. And, you know, and here's the thing, like, it's easy to say everyone wants to work at home. Not everyone wants to work at home. We no. actually like some of our employees are like, hey, I'd love to come back to the office. Okay, well, we got to do that when it's still mm-hmm. when it's fee- a lot more feasible. And, yeah. you know, a lot of businesses like mine still have significant office footprint. Mm-hmm. We've just been paying for it to be empty. So yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> All right. right. So when when we're talking, you know, talking about relaunching something, you know, what, what was the overall, like, what was the most difficult thing all, like all, all things considered? Yeah. You know, um, I think, uh, kind of organizing all the moving parts as to what, uh, you know, as, as we got back a hold of all the IP and you start diving into, you know, I think the engineering challenges were probably, uh, for me, the most challenging. It, it's one of the few times, I guess, in my career where business development and sales was way out in front of tech. You know, people knew what we had and we knew what the end deliverable was going to be and, and they were in anxious anticipation. Well, we had to version up the code and we had to do all of these different things. And, you know, we had written it in Ruby. And so then you got to find, you know, engineers that speak that language. And, you know, it was, you know, kind of, waiting you know and doing it right and making sure that everything was tested and we versioned up accordingly and we had to layer in new compliance and so for me the challenging part was marrying the new and the old you know what are we going to reuse and what are we going to have to build from scratch and then at the same time we've got our distribution channels knocking on the door saying we need it now and so we had to kind of think through phasing it's like okay well how can we answer the demand for this year and still iterate and, you know, kind of when do we start layering in these new parts that we know we need? And that has been challenging, kind of keeping the distribution warm without, you know, having them go elsewhere. Well, you know, kind of doing this tap dance of, okay, we need to focus on this area of the platform that we're uh, versioning up. Cause it, it's, it was different than the first time where you go raise your money and then start building. It's like, we just, we had a, you know, we were 80% of the way there. And we also had demand that we had to address. So it was kind of like everything hitting us at once instead of the normal, you go raise a few million dollars, you build the platform, you start your marketing, you start your sales. It was uh, sales first, check. It was just all hitting us simultaneously, which was different than the first iteration in a good way, I should say. You kind of had some revenue that you knew you were able to attain if you could hit your your mark, but it was uh, definitely stressful. I would imagine that made it a little easier to determine what was a priority and what Mm -hmm. wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's immediate revenue. And then, you know, I think the other thing that that was helpful for us is because uh, that's where that five years of kind of iteration, uh, the the system was almost more complex than it needed to be in all of the back end algorithms and calculations we were doing because we had all these tax consequences that got simpler. You know, we we were able to uh, secure Ernst & Young to come in and do all of the compliance testing and kind of help us out and and give us their name, you know, to kind of help, uh, you know, give some consumer uh, confidence, I would say, against how our system does everything so automated, uh, where everybody else is still in spreadsheets. And and really, that just comes from, you know, all of those banging our head from 2012 to 16 paid off. And so, you know, it's just really uh, coding and versioning up. And it looked, you know, it still looks, it held up 
right? We still need to update it, but it's, uh, you know, that piece of it was, and still is uh, something that we're dealing with uh, right now. It's, uh, we, we are, because we were able to get clients and uh, brokers and, and, you know, SaaS subscribers onto the platform really after two months of launch, uh, which is really April 1st, um, we were able to see some behavior that changed the way that we're looking at the product too. So because we had users in it so early, we started to identify areas that we really need to focus on where consumers were getting stuck and, and not necessarily technically, but just in this decision tree of my employer's not offering health insurance anymore. Now I have all this choice. How do I whittle through all this stuff, really not understanding the dynamics of insurance? And so it's changed a little bit of what problem are we trying to solve? Uh, sometimes the flashiest technical uh, thing isn't necessarily the right way to look at it. It's, you know, let's solve the problem, whether it's educational or, or user experience or flow or whatever it is. And because we were able to launch so quickly and because we had clients ready to go, we were able to really monitor that behavior and, and realize, you know, the, from a product perspective where we had to change, change lanes and, and make some updates. Uh, you know, on the technical side of things, turning something on that hadn't been on for a few years that that's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Cause <laughs> especially when you look at something like insurance where you have a lot of personal info and data. And for those of you listening, I'll, I'll try to make this quick. I mean, this is kind of like I'm picturing, you know, trying to start a lawnmower that's been sitting on the side of your house for like three years. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're like, I've got an engine. There's some gas. Well, let me get this old gas out because it's, yep. if that's even, you know, they put some mm -hmm. new stuff in it and you know, maybe a new spark plug. And then you're yanking on the, on the cord going, why won't this start? Well, there's a lot of, um, you know, with software, oh man, I can only imagine the, you know, what, regardless of what coding platform you use, it's definitely several versions later. Oh um, yeah. Talking about all kinds of integration nightmares because the way it synced or did or approached connecting to anything is way different. Mm -hmm. uh, database security, like all of it, man, like that, yeah. just like that sounds, uh, it was probably invigorating and terrifying at the same time. Oh, for sure. And, and, and you're Maybe like when right. Clark Griswold went to turn on his Christmas <laughs> lights, right? It's like there's this yeah. one outlet and there's like 5,000 extension plugs. And you're like, all right, now we're going to turn it on. Yes, I know. Maybe it's... it'll pop. Maybe it'll <laughs> catch on fire. Maybe it'll just turn into the brightest house on the block. You just never oh, really know. Oh, God. Yeah, I remember sitting with uh, our lead engineer and he's like, all right, here's what version we closed it. And here's where we need to get so it's supported. <laughs> I remember, I'm like, well, how many steps are in between those yeah. two? And it was like, okay, we had to do that because you're absolutely right. We're in insurance and eventually medical records and all of these things. And so, you know, we're, we're you know, in, in the heart of it, like right now we're going through our high trust audits and, you know, SOC 2 and all that other stuff that you have to do and, and our requirements in our industry. And so, you know, just to get to the minimum version so that we could, maintain and you know our CISO kind of is in there you know always doing all of that stuff but it's you know that you're, you're absolutely right it's like we had a minimum that we had to get to just to meet some regulations and you know I you know being a non-engineer you know I know enough but not that much it was like oh my goodness this is all right we're on one one point two one point you know you just it's like boy this is daunting from our engineer and there's always little tweaks along the way kind of like sailing so it was uh yeah it was it was I didn't have to directly deal with it, but I saw the stress it brought to those to those uh, to the engineering team and 
definitely something I, I think they're they're glad is you know close to being over. I think one of the things that would have scared me would have also been like, what? Okay, so I know what I want to see. What did I forget that's still mm-hmm. lingering out there? Because you know when you have a, a software platform, I mean, oh man, you know like do this with your own website, just type in HTTPS colon forward mm-hmm. slash forward slash in your domain.com and see what comes up on Google because mm-hmm. there's pages and other, other things. And here's the thing is to people, to nefarious characters, they just look at that. Oh, someone left mm-hmm. the side door open and there's yes. just a million things in there, man. That could be mm-hmm. a, a real pain in the butt. So let's talk about like re, when we're relaunching, now you got to go back out and you got to sell this. You said, you didn't have to rebrand um, because you know there wasn't a negative feeling about everything. But I would imagine that just the time in general changed the approach to BizDev, or did it not? It did, and I, you know, I think so. My team, you know, we've got twenty-five. I was supposed to be at eleven, so we've we've had to scale mostly customer support and stuff, but our. Uh, you know, I, I've got uh, a team that really has, you know, at least more than 10 years experience in this industry, either Bentech, InsureTech or insurance. And so uh, the relationship aspect of this industry is high. Everybody knows everybody, right? So from brokers to carriers to, you know, technology companies, we all know each other. And, you know, I think the fact that we have performed uh, and executed for those clients and, and our, our main client right now is the broker insurance brokers and, and they deliver our technology to their clients. Um, you know, those brokers trusted us, you know, we had built some things elsewhere that, that they had seen and is tangible. We've helped make them money and uh, be efficient. And so, you know, when, when they remembered what we had built and then they coupled with the team that now has come back together to build it and make it even better, I think, you know, it is still a relationship business. So, you know, one of the pleasant surprises we had was, you know, brokers had done some heavy vetting against other ICRA uh, providers. And when they saw then that we have answered all of the hangnails that everybody else has today, you know, how quickly can you, you know, model and, and determine how much I should give my employees so they can buy something like they have today? How do they pay their premiums? How do they shop? Is there, a, you know, is it an end to end? How do you do compliance? We had already done that. And so, you know, uh, they didn't have to piece things together. And it was very quick deployment, which is really important in this industry, because sometimes, especially in the smaller group space, you get a renewal and, and you have a week before you have to start open enrollment and you need you need to deploy quickly. And so after we were able to show the platform and turn it back on and kind of demonstrated that we how we answered all of the obstacles that exist in this deployment and that we had some history in success in deploying against it. And here's the improvements we made. It really started to snowball. And, you know, a lot of our broker partners where we thought this might be a reactionary thing for a while, you know, all right, I've, I've got a client that got a really high cost adjustment from their health insurance and they need an alternative. It turned into brokers self-identifying groups that they think are good candidates for this model. And that accelerated our growth tremendously. They're like, oh, well, especially these large national brokers. It's like, well, here's 5,000 groups that fit this mold. Let's go talk to them and, you know, help migrate them to this space. Let's get in, out in front of it. And I think that's really been a big reason for our acceleration. So the sales aspect has been really, really fun because the software does answer what all of the hangnails 
And there is an anxious anticipation for an end-to-end solution that solves these problems. And, you know, because we're, our front end is a little bit ahead of the rest of the market, um, now we're able to focus our attention to, you know, the end user, the employee as a consumer. Um, you know, how can we make that better? Because a lot of that's just the same. You know, how can we help people understand what they're buying like they would if they were buying something on Amazon or something else or a TV? You know, I always use that. Uh, I was in Best Buy, a, you know, a while ago and I saw this young couple in their 20s and they had, you know, they brought in a list of all the TVs, what it cost at Costco and Amazon and all the features they wanted. And I thought if I asked them to do the same thing for health insurance, they never would. Who's your doctor prescriptions? They just wouldn't go through that effort. And so we have to guide them through that, right? Because they've never had as much choice before. So we're able to focus our attention now on some really uh, consumer-driven things because our platform survives employment. It, it, the employees don't lose it, and neither broker doesn't lose access to those folks either. So, you know, that's the whole goal here is the end user and, and making sure that we can maintain a relationship with them over the long term and help the brokers engage with them over the long term as well. Was it a challenge to get your finger back on the pulse of like the things that were available? Because three or four years ago, telehealth wasn't a reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, there it might have been a, in concept, but I mean, it wasn't like it is now. And yeah. you just have like a whole variety of other things. Uh, I would imagine that the products for your marketplace may like, I don't know, it, it, maybe it was easy to figure out what people would ask for. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe connections in the industry were able to help clarify that. But how'd you, how'd you climb over that one? Yeah, well, you know, I'd never left the industry. So, you know, I, I was still, uh, I was just at, at it in a different capacity, more on the group side and still in the, the you know, delivering, you know, employee benefits in a, in a technical way. So, you know, I think the biggest change, you know, is, is the products themselves. So, you know, we have identified there's, you know, if you're moving from a group style benefit where you have these broad national uh, networks where you can go to doctors outside of the state, as you start diving into some of these individual markets in certain states, there's really narrow networks. Like you can go just to this hospital system or, you know, you have to navigate those waters because that's a different hurdle. And you're right with like telehealth, you know, it's, you know, that helps combat some of those narrow networks and we've got some good partnerships. You know, there's a MEMD and a few others where it's, it's not necessarily telehealth, it's virtual primary care where, you know, one of the holes in telehealth in the past is you kind of get thrown into a queue. You don't know what doctor you're talking to. This helps you build a relationship with, you know, a doctor and you see the same doctor over and over again. So you actually do utilize that virtual care. And so everything adjusts with time. You know, you realize why people aren't using it. Why is the adoption low? And they start adjusting their products accordingly. And I think for us right now, we're trying to help consumers navigate if they have to go into the individual market they're addressed with some problems that they don't have today on the group side but the cost savings and the freedom of choice is beneficial to them but you got to help them navigate it so and i think that's a changing landscape too because each state is different you know there's a bunch of mini (laughs) mini uh you know uh ecosystems all around the country there's different carriers different types of plans you know um and you got to navigate all that stuff that, I mean, that's uh, I don't think I'd want to work in that space. <laughs> you just look at like the compliance stuff. I was uh, recently recording an episode uh, with, <clears throat> I used to work in the music industry and mm-hmm. um, I've met some interesting people because of that. And one of my books is actually about the music industry. And 
um, you know, he, I, I was talking to a buddy who came through, you know, doing a tour and, you know, played here in Kansas City. And he was talking about having filed, you know, a tax return in 35 different states. Um, oh. because everywhere, everywhere you show up, you're, you're working. I mean, one of the, sure. the, I closed, I left a business at the end of 2016, you know, just, uh, uh you know, exited it because one of the things I was looking at was how I was going to probably have to hire a compliance officer just to deal with all the different shit we were doing. Sure. It, it was just, it just, it just felt messy, you know, yeah. there's so much to deal with and, you know, you get behind that behind on it or, I don't know, you get in the wrong spot with that kind of stuff. And it can be a real ball of rubber bands to undo. And it is, I mean, all the way down to like, literally, they're just going to come put a lock on your door, basically, Mm -hmm. prohibit you from doing business in a state or around state. And yeah, you know, like they have their rules, and you're going to follow them and whether you like it or not. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, I guess the good news about some of this stuff is it's known. Um, and also there's more information readily available than there ever has been before. Right. And I think, you know, there's consumer trust with how you're, so long as you're using data and, 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 uh, you know, you're not sharing it and you're using it to the consumer's advantage, you know, we can really help narrow down what's right for them. Cause you know, they might have 50 different choices. And if you know what doctors they go to, what prescriptions they take certain things, we have APIs and all these different databases that can start whittling down what plan is actually right for you based on how you're going to use the actual coverage. And, you know, so I think that makes it easier so long as they trust the process and we give, you know, really good context as to why we're making the recommendations we're making. And I think one of the key things is how's the money move? You know, I don't think a lot of people understand how insurance, uh, you know, how it moves, you know, how does deductible flow into co-insurance flow into all of these different things and to actually show them based on the prescriptions you're taking, maybe you're going to have a baby next year. Here's the money you need to be expecting to pay each month throughout the year. And we can do things like that. That really hasn't been, ex- insurance hasn't been explained in that context before. It always just kind of gives you these side-by-side comparisons. And you know, if you don't really understand what you're comparing, what difference does it make, you know? And so, I think that's, uh, you know, really going to have to change and people have to take an interest in, in what they're doing because, you know, one of the things about insurance, if you choose wrong, nobody ever cares about it until you need it. But when you need it and you have something that's that's not right for you, it could lead to bankruptcy in some cases. And so it is important. It's just you have to take the time to educate everybody. I need you to solve the problem of LabCorp sending me a $6 <laughs> copay bill in the mail. I'm every, you know, I get them because... I don't know, but I get like 10 of them a year and I'm like, could you just collect this a different yes. way? Cause I even sat down to do the math on it. And I was like, how are you even like, you might actually be better off to not send this. Yes. I mean, yeah. cause for me, it. like they send it, I forget about it. Then they send it two other times and then yeah. I finally pay it. And I'm like, wow, you're already down like 30% just on postage. Yeah. Yeah, and cost six ten bucks, bucks to collect man. six. Stop it, yeah. LabCorp. Yeah. No one yeah. wants your six dollar invoice. Yeah. Speaking of which, with me today, once again, Zach Harris, the founder and CEO of Benefit Bay. Go to benefitbay.com. Make sure to let them know that you too want 
to solve the problem of the $6 bill from, <laughs> from LabCorp. Uh, as a, before we do that, the founders freestyle, a quick reminder, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Just go to the Fullscale site. There's a page that says, get started, answer a couple questions, and we will be able to give you access to our system so you can see who's available to help solve your tech problems. As mentioned, I end my episodes of Startup Hustle with what I lovingly call the Founders Freestyle. I say my episodes. I'm not the only host of the show. Make sure you tune in weekly and join Andrew Morgans, the founder and CEO of Marknology and Amazon Brand Accelerator, as he talks with his guests all about Amazon and e-commerce. And also tune in weekly with Lauren Conaway, the founder of Innovate Her. And she talks about mainly stuff that they won't let me talk about. So uh, she gets all the all the political and uh, hot button stuff. So I, I they they keep it they they let me talk about business, Zach, and that's what <laughs> I want to get back to. So when we say the founders freestyle, I mean, what are some of the important things from this discussion that stood out when it came to how to relaunch a startup or did we forget to mention anything? <laughs> you know, I think uh, the, the core part of relaunching or even probably getting into a startup in the first place is people and relationships, right? So you've got to, you've got to get people to believe in your, uh, in your direction, uh, feel your passion, and you've got to get them to jump on board and go arm to arm with you. I think that's, probably something we didn't talk about in a huge amount, but without, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the firm that held the IP and trust believing in, in what we're trying to do and agreeing to it and the employees that jumped on board and the brokers and the clients that said, took a chance with us because of relationships, you know, building all those relationships over a long period of time and treating everybody right really helps when you're trying to take a leap of faith. And, and I think people, at the heart of this uh, are more important than technology if you're trying to get into to uh, really uh, scale something effectively. You know, when I think about how to relaunch a startup after this conversation, so I, I record uh, a short video before mm -hmm. I do these shows now, and I also do a reaction video. Check them out on go to the startup go to Startup Hustle TV. It's on YouTube, and you can see those. But I, I readily admit it. I said. You know, I don't, I'm kind of venturing into the unknown because I haven't relaunched a business. And I, I took a stab at like what some of the reasons that you might relaunch. It could be, I, I think most of the time it's a pivot. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that your situation is a lot different than a lot of people. That's why you probably can't have a true how-to manual mm -hmm. for relaunching. I think some of the things that, that would stand out from this conversation are, well, first off, do you need to rebrand? I think that's probably mm -hmm. one of the first things you need to consider. And then the why, you mm -hmm. know, like, are you doing it for the right reasons? And in your case, I don't think a rebrand, it didn't sound like it would have been a good decision because you had for social capital, you know, you had relationships and, you know, those relationships are hard to build. And I think that one of the things with, you look at things like insurance and while that's wildly different than what I and we do at full scale, it's not because we're a relationships business too. And one of the things with the relationships is, you know, like for our clients, they come around and want to do business when they're ready, not because I'm ready for them to do business with sure. us. So some of that, you know, like we have a new client that was literally the second lead we ever got when we started the company. And they just started like three and a half years later. 
So sure. some of those relationships are, are really valuable. And I think that's one of the things you can probably look at if you're even considering whether or not you can, could, or should pivot or relaunch. You know, if there's not much to save there. Now, in your case, you did have a lot to salvage. I'm glad your tech platform started up like the old lawnmower because mm -hmm. that could go a number of different ways. Um, sure. And, you know, that's, that's, you never know what's going to mm -hmm. happen with that. I mean, some stuff honestly is not worth turning back on. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of repurposing. I think you should always try to start the old lawnmower before you just go buy a new one because sure. you feel like you should. And mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of, I don't think people don't, I think people don't often consider, we take software for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't consider, it's built, it's hard building. It's hard. It so like just so much of the framing and plumbing alone might, you know, be worth salvaging, um, mm -hmm. in regards to like, I mean, I think some other things, if you're considering relaunching something, some of the challenges you're going to have are, well, do you have to rebuild faith in mm -hmm. what you're doing? You know, it sounds like yeah. you had a lot of people that adopted, they, they liked what you did. Now you mentioned, we mentioned a couple of times at the beginning of the show being too early, which mm -hmm. in most cases is the same as being wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I mean, it just is. I mean, you look yeah. back at the, I, I'm a kind of a documentary nut and I watch a lot of stuff about business and the history of business. And candidly, a lot of stuff was just early. You look at yeah. things that came out in 2000 that failed, but they're great now. Yeah. You know, and, and some of that is, you know, that's part of the, the question. And I think probably the one thing that's the most important is can you get those in your personal life to actually go for it. You know, yeah. like you mentioned your wife, you're like, that's the hardest sale that I had. And yeah. uh, I think that an entrepreneur is really only as capable as their, their partner, mm -hmm. um, you know, meaning the people at your home. And, you know, for a lot of us, like my wife puts up with my shit, man. And yeah. if she didn't like, I don't know if I could, I wouldn't have probably done 25% of what I've done. hundred percent. Yeah. So some Without of that's that like, support, you know, you and that's real people like this is real shit. So we had an episode, go back to the one with out of Matt, Matt and Matt's uh, 52 part series about how to start a tech company and listen to the one don't get stuck in the middle. Cause that's a whole nother thing. Like there's so many businesses that are, when I say stuck in the middle, they're literally middling. Like they're mm -hmm. not, they're not out of business and they're not growing. They're not fundable for that very reason. And you know, you mm -hmm. have that same question. You got to go back and answer like how much misery, pain and anguish. Cause when you're a middling company, you're usually not like, Hey man, jets and Lambos. That's not <laughs> yeah. the way that works. You're like still on founder pay and yeah, you got to sell these decisions at home because you know, I've there, well, I, there's a lot of people that used to be married yeah. For these kind of reasons. So, yeah. you know, that's a, maybe that's a, you know, another thing too is, you know, you just talk about like we even did episodes about founders depression and we didn't even get mm -hmm. into that. You well, you alluded to it. Like it's a uh, entrepreneurs are ego driven. Mm -hmm. And when, you, when your crop dies right in front of you, you're sure. like, man, I'm a shitty farmer. Yeah. You know? And maybe you are, maybe you're not. I mean, sometimes that just, you can't control it. And, sure. you know, so sometimes it's maybe even convincing yourself you can do it. Um, yeah. You know, Zach, I've come to the conclusion that I'm not employable. So I've <laughs> got to be good at being an entrepreneur because yeah. 
I don't think I I'd think most probably... of us can fall into that uh, yeah. frame for sure. Yeah. 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 We've said that a lot on this show. So it's yeah. probably a good place to end it. So yes. everyone listening, make sure that your goal is to make yourself as unemployable as possible because then <laughs> you have you have no choice but to succeed. And that's where I'm going to end it. I'll, talk, I'll catch up with you down the road, Zach. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. <laughs>